for study that we're doing, something for those of us to actually be present with each other and commit ourselves to. So like I said, if you're people who are sick, unable to be here, can go back and still listen to it, but I think it's something we should be be very personable with as we study through this. So uh, let's go ahead and pray as we jump into our second week here. Father, we ask the words of that last song, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see clearly who Jesus is, open our ears to hear your word, to hear how it is that you want us to live according to your word, that we commit ourselves in our covenant to each other. Help us to see Jesus clearly, that we may imitate him to each other in this congregation, and we just ask that you would, by your Spirit, work in our hearts this morning to strike us clearly with your word. It is a two-edged sword. Strike us to the core of our hearts with how it is you want us to live, what it is you want us to be doing with our lives as a church together. So by your Spirit, work in us this morning and help us to be filled with your Spirit that we may walk in obedience to you, and that we may do all of it for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often identify people in our world based on what we see them struggling with, don't we? That person's an addict. This one is a gossip. My neighbor is grumpy. That coworker of mine is a know-it-all. And it doesn't just end there, right? That's very easy for us to see how people are struggling, but our society has even taught us in some instances to even identify ourselves by what we struggle with. We as a family were watching a Disney movie this past week where the main character, this girl, goes to this group and says, Hello, my name is blank, and I am a shopaholic. And other groups, whether it be AA or NA, right, do the same thing. And I understand that there's an importance, right? As Christians, we would say there's an importance in confessing your sin, confessing the problem. But it's a totally different thing when we begin to say, I now identify myself based on that problem. Especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians, right? What what does Scripture tell us is true of those who are in Christ? We are new creations. Not we will be new creations, we are new creations. When we trusted in Christ, a transformation took place. A transformation in how we identify ourselves, a transformation in what we consider to be valuable in life, a transformation in how we're going to spend the rest of the days that we have in this world. The gospel transforms us. That's our theme this morning as we work through this second part of the church covenant. It says gospel transformation as the theme. Last week we saw gospel community, right? That we are all saved by Christ, we are united in Christ, and we should care for one another like Christ. If you weren't here, like I said, you can go ahead and go back and listen to that for the sake of getting this whole series. But today, we're in gospel transformation. What is it that should be so different about us who have been saved by Christ? 
What is it that we are committing ourselves to that we're going to do differently than the rest of the world when we sign this church covenant? So I'd like to begin, like I did last week, by reading this portion of the church covenant. It's there on your handout in the bulletin on the top part, so you can follow along if you want to. But just, this is what it says. Gospel transformation. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together being good students of the inerrant word of God. We will be diligent to not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. So I've broken this up into four transformations that I see here that we're going to spend some time on. At the beginning, we see a commitment to three different efforts to be made in the Christian life. We'll call these transformed disciplines. Transformed disciplines. All of us know what it's like to have have to change our disciplines, don't we? At certain moments in our lives, we have to all of a sudden change to what we're going to be disciplined to do. Right? When you send a high schooler off to college, they have to be disciplined to get themselves up in the morning now. Right? If they weren't already doing so before, they now must be disciplined to do so. Or when you get married, you now become disciplined in what you're going to do after you get off work, right? You can't just go do whatever you want now. You now have a spouse you've committed yourself to. When you have kids, right, you become disciplined in getting them up on time, getting their meals for them, making sure they get to bed on time. There's all sorts of disciplines, but in an In a very similar but much more significant way, the disciplines in our lives are transformed when we come to Jesus. They're transformed by the gospel. Trusting in Christ alters what we're going to make ourselves disciplined to do in life. The first discipline we see in our covenant is it says, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is a commitment that we're making to each other that we will not stop meeting together on a regular basis. Now, we saw some of this last week, right? Last week, we talked about the unity that exists between all of us as believers, that this is a unity in Christ that's stronger than any other unity we could possibly have in this world. So we ought to say, if we have a better unity with this group of people as followers of Jesus Christ, we certainly should want to spend time together. We certainly should want to be together on a regular basis, right? You think of people who are fans of the same sports team who have unity in that. They meet with each other every week to cheer on their team together. So how much more should we as Christians who have a better unity in Jesus be willing to spend time together on a regular basis? And we're going to spend most of our time in 1 John together today to talk about this transformation. So 1 John chapter 1 Starting in verse 5, we're going to look at what it means to have this unity together, this fellowship together. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, 
that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin." So we've seen this in the Gospel of John. It makes sense we'd see it in 1 John, right? God is light. But to claim that we have fellowship with Jesus while we're still walking in darkness, we prove ourselves to be liars. But notice what it says in verse 7. If we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, who do we have fellowship with? Not only Christ who is in the light, but with one another. John makes an important point here that our fellowship in believing in Christ is not just a fellowship with Jesus, but it's a fellowship with everyone else. Again, a fellowship that no other group in this world can duplicate. So we commit ourselves to gathering together, like this morning where we come together and worship. But it's not just for worship, it's to gather together to stir each other on in the Christian Life. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Most of you probably know this verse or these verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we sign this church covenant together with each other, we're committing, we're promising this to each other. We're not going to neglect our meetings together, but we will come together and not just come together for the sake of showing up, but come together to stir each other on to love and good works, to encourage one another as we await the day that we know is coming, that Christ is coming again. And so some of you, many of you here in this room, have upheld your commitment to this, especially in the midst of COVID in these last couple years. And it's been a great encouragement to watch happen, right? To know that you can show up Sunday morning and know you can count on certain church members that they're going to be present every week they possibly can. And know that they're not just here simply to be present, but to actually care for each other. Others... Maybe you have been doing well at showing up, but you're not doing so for the sake of caring for the other people who are here. Maybe you're showing up for the worship service and for your own sake and the fact that people see that you're here, but you're not caring for others. Others in this last couple years have wavered in this commitment. They have neglected to meet together. And then unfortunately we have some who have just abandoned the commitment completely. Which leaves us asking the questions, right, of what, how much transformation has really taken place if they're not making this commitment a priority. So this is why we're doing what we're doing in this series. Looking at the covenant and truly asking ourselves, am I actually living by this covenant? Am I being present on a regular basis with the church body and not just showing up but being present to care for each other, to stir each other on, to encourage each other in the Christian life. The next discipline that we come to is it says, we will be good students of the inerrant word of God. 
Now, we already hit some of this in the first message of the new year where I uh, called us to be a people of the word. You can go back and listen to that also if you missed it. But we must realize that when we sign this church covenant, we're committing ourselves to make the discipline of Scripture a priority in our lives. Back to 1 John again. 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Proof of whether we truly know God or not, whether we truly are saved or not, is if we keep his commandments. If you say you abide in Christ, you've been saved by Christ, you should walk in the same way that Christ walked. How in the world does that happen if you don't take the time to study how Christ walked? It doesn't. You can't walk the same way that Christ walked without ever looking at how Christ walked, which we only find in God's word. You won't ever display that you are walking in the truth unless you become a student of the truth. In fact, our congregation has a few different teachers, retired or current teachers. Just ask any one of them if what most Christians do with the Bible would be acceptable in their classrooms. If a teacher gives students an assignment to read a book and write an essay on how they are similar or different to the main character, how well will that student complete the assignment by the next week if they come back and said, I read one sentence a day? Or what if that student comes in and says, I didn't read any the rest of the week, but one day this week, me and a group of friends got together and we read one chapter and talked about it. How well is that student going to complete the assignment which is encompassed by the entire book? Yet, isn't that exactly what we try to pull off as Christians sometimes? One verse a day, one paragraph in the sermon each week, and that's good. If if you even do that much. My friends, we have a main character, Jesus Christ. To imitate. But we will never do so without actually taking the time to be a student of what his life looked like. That's why Paul writes what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And I think this is where a lot of our, this part of our covenant actually comes from. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed... Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. Do you have the confidence that you say you know how to rightly handle this book? That you've become such a student of it, a diligent student of it, that you know how to rightly handle it? Or would you say you're ashamed in your work ethic when it comes to studying Scripture? 
we must commit ourselves to being good students of the most important words we could ever hear. Words that have come from God himself to us. And then we come to the last discipline that we commit to. We will be diligent to not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Now, prayer is often thought of as one of the easiest disciplines, isn't it? You can do it anywhere, at any time. You can do it driving in your car on the way to work. You can do it laying in your bed in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. You can do it when you're walking the dog, whatever it may be. And that's true. We should rejoice in that reality, that in Christ we can come to God no matter what the time is, no matter what the place is. And I rejoice in everyone here who does so. I'm thankful for each one of you who takes our prayer list and prays through it. I pr- those of you who pray for those that you notice are missing each week in our gathering together. The, those of you who pray for those who are sick. And as this covenant even says, you pray for your own lives as well. I rejoice in those of you who do that. But I just want to spend a quick moment from 1 John reminding us of an important aspect of prayer. And it comes at the very end of the book, 1 John chapter 5 verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What is the qualifier to know that our prayers will be heard and to know that we will have the requests that we ask for? It says, if we ask according to his will. And we have to remember, that's not just the tagline you throw at the end of the prayer. right? I'm just going to petition and make a list of requests and say, according to your will, boom, they're done. right? I'm going to receive them because I said those magic words at the end and then said amen. The point here is that your prayers should be informed, assessed, by what is God's will. How much do my prayers line up with God's will? Now, there are some things in life that we aren't sure, we we don't know what God's will is, right? When someone is sick, is it God's will to heal them or not? That's not for us to know, right? We see people who aren't healed in Scripture. We see people who are healed in Scripture. And so we pray and ask for their healing and say, Lord, let it be done according to your will. Right? That's not just a tagline. That's our genuine desire straight from the Lord's Prayer. Right, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. However, there are plenty of things in Scripture that we do know is God's will for our lives. Examples straight from God's Word. It says, for the will of the Lord or the will of God is these things. To serve the Lord with a good will, not to serve him as a people pleaser. Our sanctification... Our growth and holiness, we're told, is God's will for our lives. To honor everyone, to love the brothers and sisters, to fear God, we are told all of those things are God's will for our lives. How much do your prayers consist of these requests? How much do you pray that you will serve the Lord, not to please people, but with a good heart? How much do you pray that you would grow in holiness, that you would pursue your sanctification? How much do you pray that you would honor everyone, that you would grow in your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would fear fear God more and more? Right. So these are the disciplines we commit ourselves to, to meet together, 
to be students of God's word and to pray for ourselves and for each other according to God's will. But moving from transformed disciplines, we then come to the next sentence. We'll call this transformed conflict. Because we all understand, don't we, that we live still in a broken world. Even being saved by Christ, we're still going to continue to have conflict in this world, even within the church body. Because every single one of us in here still has an old self. Right? We still have a sinful flesh that is going to have desires for the wrong things. Desires for earthly things rather than heavenly treasures. And when our earthly values clash, whether it's this person's earthly value versus this person's earthly value, or this person's earthly value versus this person's heavenly treasure, whatever it is, when they clash with each other, we have conflict. So what we do here is we commit ourselves to handling these conflicts in a way that honors God, in a way that displays that we're different than how the world around us handles conflict. Because how does the world handle conflict? One of two ways, right? The two extremes. Cancel that person, right? Leave them, abandon them, get rid of them. You don't want them. Or berate them. Hammer at them until they agree that you're right. Right? That basically sums up two very common responses to conflict. But neither of these is Christ-honoring. To divide from each other or to berate each other is not how Christians are called to handle conflict. What I want to do is in 1 John, I want to look at how God, Christ, handles our conflict with him and use that as a basis for how we handle our conflict with each other based on what our covenant says. So look at it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Two parts to this. First, really mostly in verse 9, right? If we confess our sins, that demands humility. And understanding that we are in the wrong before God himself. And when it comes to conflict with each other, our first look should be inward. Our first look should be what the covenant states. We will be slow to take offense. We don't jump to anger assuming that they meant something hurtful by what they said. We first look at ourselves. We remember we're called to what? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, We remember that we're called to what? Take the log out of your own eye before worrying about the speck in someone else's. Is that how we've handled conflict in this church body? Do we slow down and say, okay, maybe I did something wrong. Or maybe I'm understanding what they said wrongly. Maybe I still didn't sin, but I'm understanding them incorrectly here. Even if they said it in the wrong way, maybe their intention wasn't to be critical. Are we giving the other person the benefit of the doubt time and time again, making ourselves slow to take offense? And then we see that when we confess our sins, what does God do? God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
so also we, whether it's we realize our own sin that someone has stated to us, or when the other person has sinned and they come and confess that sin to us, we commit ourselves to what? The covenant says, always be ready for reconciliation. Always. Always ready for reconciliation. I know that's hard. Especially when it seems like there's certain people in our lives that just continue to be critical and critical and critical on us. But God never wronged us. And you know what? He was still faithful, ready to forgive us the moment that we confessed our sin. We must display that to each other. In fact, I think our society watching us as a church body should be shocked by the way that we reconcile with each other. The unity that exists between us in the midst of having conflict with each other. And so in this covenant, we're committing ourselves to first look inward, to giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, and to always have a readiness to be at peace with each other, to make that peace happen with each other. So that's transformed conflict. We're going to continue in a very relational area between church members. Now we're going to commit ourselves to transformed friendships as we get into the next part. Because think about it. What identifies a good friend in our world? We'll often call someone a good friend as long as this is someone who's there for me. Someone who I can enjoy life. Someone who comes alongside me during the tough times. But notice the emphasis. It's someone who helps me, right? This person, my friend, is happy when I'm happy. They're sad when I'm sad. However, what we find in Christian friendships, transformed friendships, is that we tend now are to be called to be others-centered, outward-focused. Look at the statement. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. This calls to mind a verse you may know from Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You should feel what other people around you are feeling. It turns from, I want them to feel what I'm feeling, to I want to share in whatever they're feeling. If they're rejoicing, I want to rejoice. If they're weeping, I want to weep. When's the last time you had such an experience here at church? When's the last time someone shared something truly exciting in their life and you went home rejoicing because of that person's joy? Or when's the last time you actually wept tears because a fellow church member was weeping? Are we so bound to each other's lives that we feel each other's joy and feel each other's pain? And let me go one step further here real quick. We must be careful as to what we are defining here when we say other people's happiness and other people's burdens and sorrows. The reason why we should share in each other's joy, we should share in each other's pain, is because all of us who are in Christ should be pursuing joy from the same source. So we also should feel sorrow when we experience times in our lives that are resistant to that source, which is Christ himself. So what this means is, 
I don't necessarily have to feel sorrow if there's a fellow Alabama fan in the congregation who's upset that they lost the national championship this week. I don't have to share in that sorrow. That's not what it means. Nor does it mean I have to rejoice when a person got a raise, but they went through unethical means to get it. But it does mean that we should feel genuinely happy, joyful, when we see other people around us taking steps towards their relationship with Jesus. And we should feel sorrowful when we see each other fail. When we see each other walk in sin, but we respond to that by coming alongside one another. Restoring each other back to the fellowship and bearing each other's burdens in the pursuit of honoring Christ with our lives. A true Christian friendship is one where we are bound to each other's godliness. Rejoicing when we see one person take growth in their steps and tenderly mourning when we see someone take a step backwards. Just a quick example from this week that Lydia and I had that I hope you all can take some joy with, as we are. It's crazy. It's like within, as soon as Sadie turns four, we start having these very like intense gospel conversations. And she's beginning to have some gra- deep grasp on these concepts of heaven and hell and sin and what it means that Jesus was on the cross and what it really means for her to trust in Jesus. But we're also discontent. We're joyful that she's grasping onto these things, but we're also discontent because she hasn't made it known yet that she's ready to trust in him. She's not quite ready to turn from her sin and say, my life is now for him instead. And I hope you, as being part of this church, who rejoice in the joy of the same source, can say, yes, there's, there's a joy in her steps in progress of starting to understand these things and starting to ask questions about these things. I think the one night she was up till midnight asking questions and questions and questions about this. And I hope as a church you can rejoice in that, but also that you can pray with us and anticipate that soon it'll grasp her heart that the Spirit will work in her and create this work where she will trust in Jesus And we do this with each other because we have deep connections, because we have transformed friendships with one another. And then we come to the last paragraph where we see what we'll call transformed appetites. Has anyone ever experienced a change in your appetite? Anybody ever had something where something that once tasted terrible, you now love to eat it? Or where something you once loved, now you can't even go near it anymore? Coffee is often this way, isn't it? We call it an acquired taste. Well, as Christians, what our hearts have an appetite for, what they desire the most, should be transformed in our lives. We should be craving now different things than what we craved before we came to know Jesus. Or even in those early years of walking with Jesus, our appetites should be changed after years of walking with him. See it in 1 John, again, chapter 2, verse 15 this time. Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's two loves at odds with each other. Love for the world, love for the things in the world, and then the love of the Father. And it's described here as desires, right? To love the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. But what we find out by the end is those worldly desires are passing away. One day, all those pursuits of worldly things will cease to exist. There will be nowhere to go anymore to seek satisfaction in them, because they won't be there. So thus we state in our covenant, by divine aid, we commit to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Right, And lusts could be synonymous there with desires or loves. As a believer in Jesus, you are committing yourself to not love anymore what you once loved. This is why those terms from the beginning, right, alcoholic, shopaholic, can be so devastating. You shouldn't love what you once loved anymore if you're a new creation in Christ. That doesn't mean it's not going to be a fight, That doesn't mean it's not going to be a struggle, but it means that you refuse to sum up your identity anymore as someone who still loves those things. And as we put off the worldly longings, the worldly desires, we put on godly ones. Our covenant states, we now have an obligation to lead a new and holy life. Your life must look drastically different as a believer in Jesus. Look real quick at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. The way you live, what you practice, according to these verses, is driven by your desires. It's driven by your heart's appetite. If you make a practice of sinning, whether it be the sin of anger, the sin of laziness in your spiritual life, the sin of greed, of wanting more stuff in life, you prove yourself that you belong to the devil if you make a practice of those things. You cannot be born of God, have the seed of God abiding in you and growing in you, and practice sin at the same time. So you have to ask yourself the simple question, what do you love more than God? Is it sports? Your family? Your job? Your status among the unbelievers around you, your possessions, all of those loves will be displayed by the way you live your life. But you are called to be a new creation, to have a holy life, 
A life that pursues, a life that desires, that loves, first and foremost, God and His glory. All other aspects of life must fall behind Him. If you don't have a desire for God, if you don't have a desire for living by God's ways, if you don't have a desire for God to be honored and glorified in your life, you've got to ask yourself, why? Because our appetites should experience transformation. So my friends, my final word for you is going to be the same word that John actually closes his letter with. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because here's the truth. Anything that gets in the way of your gospel transformation is an idol. Attendance becomes sporadic at church because something else is more important. Being a student of Scripture takes a back seat because you have other priorities in life. Praying according to God's will gets lost because your will needs to be front and center. You take offense quickly and deny reconciliation with others because you demand that your pride gets the honor. You refuse to rejoice and weep with others because you are the center of your own universe. You will fail to live as a new creation as long as the lusts of the world still have a grasp on your heart. Now, some people give their time and attention to these idols because they're not truly saved. Because they never really have been transformed. But then there's also the rest of us who are believers who make these decisions and go after these idols because we've been saved, but we're wrestling with the spirit who lives in us and the cravings of our old selves. All of us as Christians wrestle, don't we? of what it means to live out, to be transformed by the gospel. So what do we do? We make this covenant together. And we say, we're going to commit ourselves to walk with each other in the transformation of our disciplines in life, the way we handle conflict in life, the kind of friendships that we have, and and the appetites, what it is we're desiring in life. Will you affirm, commit yourself to this covenant together? Will you pursue the demolition of idols in your own heart and aid others in destroying their idols as well? This is what we're establishing with each other when we say we're going to commit ourselves by this covenant to pursue after, to chase after gospel transformation in each other's lives. Let's pray together. Father, we know it is only by your aid, by your spirit, that we could ever demolish the idols in our own lives. We can't do it ourselves. So help us to be utterly dependent upon you to work in us, to transform our appetites, to transform the disciplines we have in life, 
and help us to understand the people that you've placed around us to help us in this process. Other people who also have your spirit in them that you've given us, that they also would help us by transforming the way we handle conflict with each other, by transforming the friendships we have, that we would stir each other on regularly. All of us in our pursuit of Christ, in our pursuit of having a desire, an appetite for you, for your kingdom, for your glory in our lives, in the community around us, and in this world. So help us. Only by your help, by your spirit in us, by the cross of Christ that saves us. That's the only hope we have to have this transformation take place. So help us to rest in Christ, but also make forth every effort for ourselves and for each other that we might live lives of holiness, putting off the ways of the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As they come up for the last song, we're going to sing something that I think fits really well with...